The content of CPR Unplugged is designed for entertainment purposes only and is not intended as mental health treatment or medical or mental health advice. Details such as names and locations may have been changed to protect individual privacy. Hello and welcome to CPR Unplugged. I'm your host, Rob, and today we are joined by Seth, who is the business development manager of the Hope House. Uh, Seth, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Rob. You know, I, I really appreciate you guys having me out here today. Oh, we yeah, appreciate you being here. Yeah. yeah, very much so. So Seth uh, works at uh, Hope House. He's the business development manager. He describes it as a luxury substance abuse treatment facility in North Scottsdale. And Seth, what uh, brought you to that role with the Hope House and, and into the uh, into recovery? Right, right. Well, um, that is a loaded question, Rob. It is. <laughs> I that could go a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, I suppose it all started back, um, you know, in my childhood. I, I had a very turmoil childhood growing up. Father was an addict. Mom was an alcoholic. And uh, a, a lot of physical abuse happened, um, not only to me, but also my mother. Um, and in some instances, I was forced, you know, to watch the, the, this sort of stuff take place. And as I grew older, it's, uh, it's just one of those things that affects you for the rest of your life, whether you want it to or not. So how did that affect you later in, in life as you grew up? Well, I immediately had a, a bunch of... It's always hard to talk about. Um, I had a lot of abandonment issues, you know, gr- um, growing up, especially, you know, when my father left. Um, and in that time span of my life, I was very vulnerable. I was five or six. And, um, you know, my father took off on, on me and my mom and, uh, that kind of made her, I, I think hit rock bottom, you know, like rock bottom is a term that is thrown around a lot, you know, not only in the recovery rooms, but also in the industry. And, um, she had to make a change and it, it's funny, you know, in the moment I was absolutely devastated looking back. I think that may have been one of the best things that have, that's ever happened in my life. Um, and growing up, it was very hard to maintain relationships with people. You know, um, I found that I would grow um, attached to people very, very quickly. And then um, over the span of time, if we were ever separated or if I moved schools or something, it, it I don't know, it just wouldn't really phase me. And I had a hard time maintaining friendly relationships with people. Um, and now being educated on trauma and, you know, depression and anxiety, that is a textbook symptom of trauma. Having a hard time, you know, not only making relationships, but also maintaining them. Right. Because of the fear that they're going to hurt you, maybe, you know, the fear that um, they're going to leave one day, you know, that sort of thing. So to, to fast forward a little bit here, um, my, my mother, met my stepfather, excellent guy. You know, working in this industry, you know, sometimes you hear some horror stories about stepfathers. Mine happened to be a loving, caring man that, you know, basically raised me as his own. We moved from Ohio out here to Arizona in 2004, I believe. And I just happened to fall into sports. You know, it was all about sports. I stopped, uh, I stopped drinking. I stopped smoking weed, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, really began to um, push my attention towards the athletic spectrum, right? A healthy outlet. Right, right. A, a healthy outlet, you know. And uh, for most um, addicts and alcoholics, we need to be able to hyper-focus on something, whether that be athletics, art, music, you know, most of the people that I come across in my, in my recovery journey are very talented in one of those avenues, 
right? And I think that is a key to recovery also, you know, kind of finding yourself. But anyways, I digress. So um, I, I got a, a soccer scholarship, you know, in college to play. And I, uh, my freshman year, I snapped my ankle. And here I am, an 18-year-old kid that has all of this undiagnosed trauma, doesn't really know what's wrong with him. And the doctor gives me Oxycontin 80s. Right, which for those of us who don't know what they are, you know, that's basically the strongest version of synthetic heroin that they created at the time. And I didn't know how to process this. I didn't know how to manage this. And that began what I called the self-medication process. You know, um, if I did a bunch of narcotics prior to going to bed, I didn't have to have any nightmares anymore. Right. Um, when I started to feel some of the side effects of trauma, social anxiety, um, the shaking, the tremors, you know, hypervigilance, looking around, I could always take one of those and calm down. Right. I, and then all of a sudden I found that in social situations at the college parties, going on dates, I wasn't as socially awkward anymore. Right. Because my nervous system was so calmed due to the drugs. And uh, that lasted all of maybe three or four months before it became too much for me. I stopped going to class. I stopped going to soccer practice. I stopped going to the rehab for my ankle. And all I did was, you know, smoke these pills. I flunked out of college a couple months after that. So I only had one semester into college. Um, I came back. Um, and at this point, I already had a physical dependency on these, you know, pills. And it was when I was back in Arizona, you know, living with my parents, going to Chandler Gilbert Community College. That's when they stopped making the OCs. And they switched to Opanas. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with those. And what's the difference? So the difference is um, the United States government realized that the Oxycontin 80s were very easily manipulated into being abused. You could shoot them. You could smoke them. You could snort them. So the Opana was essentially the fix for that. Let's continue to make sure Big Pharma makes their money. But let's also attempt to help some people. And all that did for me was push me more towards heroin because with the Opanas, you have to take it. It is water soluble. So if you try to snort it, if you try to smoke it, that sort of thing, it, it has no effect on you. So, and I remember the first time I, I went to my dealer to get Oxycontin 80s and he said, well, you know that they stopped making those, but I have this and it's a lot cheaper and it's a lot stronger. So I said, okay. And that began, you know, the second phase, I think, of my addiction, which was just the criminal activity in and out of Tent City, in and out of the county jails for petty thefts, you know, stuff like that. And um, to be honest with you, completely destroying my family dynamic. And I would just like to remind everybody, you know, that this is the consequence of the childhood trauma that I received, right? At this point in time, it was still undiagnosed. So I, I went to a couple treatment centers in my uh, early to mid-20s trying to get sober, trying to figure out what had happened, but not being able to be fully honest with my therapist because there was a lot of shame and guilt, you know, involved with that. And how can they properly treat somebody if they're not being fully honest with what's going on? And I also run into that a lot in my profession now, right? And you may not have known yourself at the time. Right, right. And, and that's a really good point. You know, I mean, I knew that, you know, my childhood wasn't fantastic, but you know, after talking to other people in the rehab center, this seemed to be a common occurrence. So this had to be what everyone went through, right? I didn't connect the dots yet that, you know, a lot of people were in the rehab because of what happened in the childhood. Right. So, it, it, and honestly, the, the story continues on like a loop for um, about 21 to 25, 
right? Just continues on a loop. In and out of jail, abusive relationships, toxic relationships, um, destroying my family dynamic, not being there for my brothers. And it eventually ended up with me being homeless on the streets of Mesa. By this time, I had started also ingesting meth. And that complicates everything, you know, especially from a mental health standpoint. The drug methamphetamine is created all with synthetic chemicals battery alkalis, pseudoephedrine, all of that sort of stuff. And it's, there's science behind it, you know, that shows that if you have any sort of mental health um, issue, it is only going to complicate that mental health diagnosis. So now I'm talking to myself, right? Now, um, not only am I talking to myself, but I'm hallucinating things. And on top of the trauma, right? Methamphetamine just made it more and more complicated for me to get better. I started living in a false reality of what was actually going on around me, and I believe that false reality. I believe the term is a meth-induced psychosis, right? Yes. Okay. And uh, it was that time that I went to um, a treatment center in California. It's called Spencer's Recovery Center. And they did it differently for me. It wasn't about going to AA and doing the meetings, right? That was a part of the program. It was, you know, getting a sponsor, doing the steps, fellowshipping, that sort of thing. But the focus was more on what's underneath your substance abuse, right? And that's when I was introduced to EMDR, accelerated resolution therapy, you know, sand tray therapy, that sort of thing to combat the trauma and the underlying issue of the addiction, right? And from there on, I mean, it was still hard, you know, like the first year of my sobriety, it it was one of the hardest years of my life even more so than when I was using. And I say that because I didn't have my coping mechanism anymore, right? Drugs and alcohol are not our problem. Drugs and alcohol are the coping mechanisms for our problems. And, you know, I saw, you know, people I went to high school with, getting married, buying cars, buying houses, all of the material stuff that I've always wanted and have never came close to grasping. And I had to take it on the jaw and I had to continue, you know, doing the right thing, taking my prescribed medication by the psychiatrist, and being patient. And after I handled what was underneath my addiction, only did I begin to heal and actually grow forward. Now, to finally answer your question, what brought me to working at the Hope House, right, at the very beginning. Right. I I started off being a house manager for Spencer's about six months into my sobriety. And I jumped around from place to place being a house manager, you know, and really uh, understanding the operations side of running a rehab and what that looked like and catering to clients' needs and I didn't let that become my program. I just let that guide me in my spirituality for and, and to build my passion for helping other people. So in, let's see here, I believe it was 2018, my girlfriend had gotten pregnant again with our second child. And at this point, things are going very well. We, we decided to pack up from California and come back to Arizona. And uh, it was there that my old counselor from Chandler Valley Hope, who I still stayed in contact with, got me a job at a place called Rising Phoenix, which is a very small IOP in Scottsdale. And they gave me a shot, you know, at being a marketing guy. And I just kind of ran with it, you know, from there. I mean, you know, a guy like me doesn't really have any other opportunities. You know, I don't have a college degree. I have a couple felonies to show for it. (laughs) So you have experience. Right, right. You know, and I think that really helps me. You know, with talking on the phone to these clients that are calling in, hear it all the time. You don't understand what I'm going through. You, you don't know what's really happening. And I'm like, well, actually, no, I know exactly what's going on. Right. And they don't realize <laughs> it at the time, but you, you understand what's going on for them. Right, right. I think I, I'm very, very religious now. 
you know, that, that just happened to be kind of where my program took me. And I think that, you know, God had all these terrible things happen to me at, um, at the beginning of my life so that now I can help other people walk through them in my adulthood, right? I know exactly what to do. I know exactly where to send them to get these services. Um, and I think that's a part of the reason why I'm so successful at, you know, like what I'm doing now. Having your higher power guide you mm-hmm. and your higher power guided you into recovery and uh, helping others. Yeah. Like um, uh, living the, the 12th step. Exactly. Exactly. You know, living the 12th step every day. But for me, I mean, I think it goes a little bit further than that. Just not only being able to identify with what's going on, but identify with the pain associated with that and to give a possible solution. Like this is a means to an end. If you want this to stop, you need to do this, this, and this. The Hope House, you know, the, the place that I work for now, it's very similar to Spencer's where shove the 12 steps down anyone's throat. You know, especially nowadays, there are different programs that have spun off from the 12 steps. There's Refuge Recovery, which is the Buddhist approach. Um, smart Recovery, obviously. Celebrate Recovery, you know. But mainly at the Hope House, we are more focused on what's the underlying issue. We, we do EMDR. We do accelerated resolution therapy, and we also do somatic experiencing, all proven treatment modalities to help the underlying issue of the addiction. Um, We also have a psychiatric nurse practitioner on staff who can prescribe any meds that one might need, you know, 24-hour nursing staff, all of the things that, you know, a hospital stay could give you, but in the comfortability of a very nice home with a chef and all those sorts of things. Yeah. And, and I want to get back to talking about that too, Seth. I, I wanted to ask you before we, we spoke more about the Hope House is what are some of the other things that you do uh, in terms of your recovery like day to day? What helps you when you have those moments, you know, where you need a little extra uh, help or assistance, guidance? You know, what, what are your, the, the actions that you take in your recovery? Well, for, for me specifically, it's all about activity. Um, not only did I have trauma, you know, and that sort of thing, but I'm also diagnosed with ADHD. So I, I have a very hard time. You know, my sponsor taught me, you know, when you're having a hard time, you help others, you pray, and you meditate. So um, and it's, it's very simple. It's those three things. It's just the meditation piece for me um, happens to be a little bit different, whether it be playing basketball, going for a swim. It, it's what's called active meditation. You know, I, I have a very hard time sitting still and just listening to my thoughts. But meditation is really defined with any activity that blocks out your brain process. Exactly. Right? So, um, I mean, you know, swimming, I do a lot of swimming, I do a lot of basketball, even video games, you know, can sometimes be very, you know, helpful for me because I'm just sitting there focusing on something else. And that's how I kind of get my answers, you know, to things that I need. Yeah, and I think that's real important, Seth. I appreciate you sharing that in terms of expanding the idea of meditation because I hear a lot of people say that same thing. I just can't sit there and, and you know, have my mind go blank. But there are so many different activities that people can do, yeah. whether it be sports or, you know, any interests. I've heard people do things like needlepoint or, you know, just something that gets you out of your head for a period of time is always a form of meditation that I think is often overlooked yeah absolutely you know um my buddy um he's a hiking machine 
Here's know? another one. Yeah, he, he just hikes maybe four or five times a week, mm-hmm. you know, but, but but that's what works for him. You know, the, there is no cookie cutter explanation on how you deal with these um, continuing challenges. But um, through helping others, working the steps, you know, doing the therapy, I mean, y- you will be eventually at a point where you will identify who you are, who you want to be, and the steps you need to take to get there. Right. And, and, and that looks different for everybody else, I think. And with the Hope House, is it a, um, tell me a little bit more as far as, uh, is it a residential facility? Do people come and stay there for any periods of time? And do you offer a continuum of services, like intensive outpatient or outpatient services as well? We are a residential treatment facility in Scottsdale, Arizona. The, the average length of stay varies uh, between 20 and 30 days. It all kind of depends on what the insurance company tells us that they want to do. Um, unfortunately, that's how the government has structured it, and I'm just going to leave that at that. So after someone does their stay in the residential part of the program at the Hope House, what comes next? That's a very good question. So um, well, we always push for aftercare, 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 aftercare. There is scientific data that shows you know, someone's odds of reaching a year sober absolutely skyrocket if they can obtain 90 days of sobriety. The Hope House being between 20 and 30, we would then refer them to a PHP center, uh, which stands for Partial Hospitalization Program, and that can go anywhere from one to two months. And then after that, it's IOP, you know, intensive outpatient, and that can go anywhere from one to three months. So ideally, we would like for somebody to be in some form of treatment from anywhere to three to six months prior to going to either sober living or returning home. Um, that is how the American Board of Psychology has structured it, starting with detox, residential, partial hospitalization, intensive outpatient. And, you know, we do work with a couple partners, you know, in the area. Um, It's all dependent upon what the client needs clinically and what they're looking for. You know, and then we will make the referral based upon those. And does the Hope House offer detox as well, or does someone have to detox prior to coming into the residential program? Clients always are required to go into detox uh, prior to coming to residential per our policies and procedures. Even if they're reporting, you know, that they haven't been using that much, we still like to get them medically cleared at the detox level of care prior to them coming to us. And that's only for the client's safety. Um, you know, heaven forbid if someone were to lie about how much they were using and they were to have a seizure, you know, something like that, that's obviously detrimental not only to their physical health, but also to their treatment. Yeah. Well, what, what, what would the day look like for someone involved in treatment at the whole house? Good question. So, um, every day starts at about 7 a.m. Um, you know, you, you wake up, you shower, that sort of thing, obviously. And then you go down where our chef has made breakfast for you. Um, and, and the day begins usually with a meditation session, kind of a goal setting, you know, like what's your goal for today? What, what would you like to achieve? And then in the morning, um, you know, it's usually educational groups. We're doing a little bit of relapse prevention, some CBT, some DBT work. And then we break for lunch. And lunch is usually between noon and one o'clock. In the afternoons, however, that's where, you know, we like to mix it up and we like to keep it fresh. Um, our, our acupuncturist will come in one day of the week. We have a massage therapist that is always on site. We do equine therapy with the horses. We do yoga. We do meditation. Um, there's also a bi- biofeedback room. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with that. Um, it is actually a computer program that is scientifically proven to, to regulate the nervous system and to center the breathing. Um, if someone's having an anxiety attack or possibly a panic attack, we can put them on that machine and it, it does absolutely wonders. 
You know, sometimes when I'm feeling overwhelmed at work, I'll just sit on it for about 10 minutes and get back to it. And, you know, uh, we're taking them for outside activities. You know, we're going on hikes. We're going bowling. We're we're trying to restructure their lives and to show them, you know, you can have fun sober. You know, we're so pre-programmed and so wired to think, wow, having fun is going out to a party and getting annihilated drunk. You know, and it's it's not. You know, it's really not, you know, so um, the Hope House as a whole really attacks addiction on a lot of different fronts. Um, Not only clinically, you know, medically, we have the 24-hour nursing staff there. You know, our medical doctor is present on site, our psychiatric nurse practitioner, which I mentioned before. You know, so no matter what arises at the Hope House, you know, we have the staff there that can handle it. We recently opened up a second location as well. That location is also only 10 beds, so both houses are only 10 beds. We have two master's level clinicians at each location, which gives them a caseload of only five to one. Um, So what you can expect when you come to the Hope House is many, many one-on-one therapy sessions. We have an open door policy to where um, a client can walk in and have a one-on-one whenever they want. Um, You know, our clinicians are eating lunch with the clients. You know, their office is in a very uh, reasonable spot where they can always be contacted. You know, and that's kind of the goal of the Hope House is to really provide the individual care, you know, that a lot of other facilities say that they do. But we, you know, can't accommodate those things. So like you said earlier that you're addressing the the underlying issues as well as the the addiction. So they're engaged in individual therapy. They do group therapies as well? Yes, they do. So um, all of our clinical material is based off of Patrick Karn's model. Um, our clinical director, Brenda Gonzalez, was trained under PM Melody at the Meadows, and she literally wrote the book on how to treat trauma. You know, so our, our staff is very educated on how to treat trauma and treat what's underneath the addiction, whether that be through therapy, through medications. You know, we also have a full gym on site, you know, so you can do the, the exercise and the physical piece as well. You do 12-step recovery work there as well? The quick answer is no. You know, we don't um, take them to off-site meetings. We, we usually have meetings come in, you know, to the clients. Um, but, you know, as I said before, we don't enjoy pushing the 12 steps onto anybody you know our idea of residential is to attack what's underneath you know the the addiction and then the 12 step and you know refuge recovery and the recovery programming comes more into play at the php and iop levels of care you know our job at residential is to get them stabilized on a good medication regimen and to get them ready for success at the outpatient level and like we've uh, talked with other guests in the past that there's there's no uh, one path that someone can take in recovery that uh, you know a lot of times it's uh, you know whatever works it's an individualized uh, journey that everyone's on and certain things are going to work for some as um, and that won't for others so 12 steps uh, sometimes isn't necessarily uh, the best course of action for for someone so it sounds like you you offer one of those other paths that someone can take uh, in terms of recovery and you try to establish those recovery sober living skills and and hopefully get a good base going with them so that when they move on to the next phase of treatment that they have a a solid base to leave from absolutely you know um, the whole idea of the hope house is to meet the client where they're at Um, in that that spot where they're at obviously ranges very vastly but but once again you know we have our staff is in recovery you know and they've all taken these different routes to get to where they are today um you know so we're we could handle just about you know anything i like to think
whatever works. Right. So that's the important part. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Seth, for joining us here today on CPR Unplugged. Well, thank you for having me, guys. You know, I, I really appreciate you guys having me out and giving me the opportunity to help other people. Um, if anyone would like to get into contact with me, you know, uh, but please reach out 480-322-0489, or you can always visit the Hope House website, and that is www.thehopehouse.com. Thank you, guys. Thanks again, Seth. Yeah. And join us for our next episode of CPR Unplugged. Got questions or ideas for the podcast? Or perhaps you have your own story to share. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at podcast at crisisprepandrecovery.com or call 602-281-7795. You can also find us online at cprpodcast.podbean.com or wherever you prefer to find your podcasts. CPR Unplugged was produced by Crisis Preparation and Recovery, Inc. The intro and outro music was created by Rob Wilson. The CPR podcast team includes Tamara Lamontine, Ben Edwards, Laura Kaufman, Rob Wilson, and Michael Magarinos. Special thanks to Jason Spisak for technical support.